Baxter Bowman Podcast. If you're obsessed with the strategies, gear, and stories that will make you a better backcountry bow hunter, you're in the right place. We're independent, unsponsored, and unbiased, so we can cut the fluff and give you detailed advice on what really works and what doesn't. Today's episode is the first in a new series called the Elk Hunting Crash Course. Last year, we did a 22-part series about hunting elk, and we're going to condense all of that into four or five episodes, so stay tuned to learn more. All right, Josh, we got a lot to cover today. Oh, crash course. Yes. It's going to be get your, get your pen, pen and pencil, notepad out people. Cause, uh, maybe get two pens. Cause you might run out of ink with the first one. There's going to be <laughs> so <Lots>. much info. <laughs> I think we were both talking um, about this and we, you know, for those that are new to the podcast, we did a 22 part series last year where it was me mentoring Josh, you know, my, my whole pitch is they have been successful in four out of the first five years I've been hunting and just basically hey, helping them out, teaching them all this stuff. Uh, we got really cool feedback from a lot of folks, but a bunch of folks have also said, which of these episodes should I listen to? There's 25 hours of content there. That's a lot. So for new folks, we want to condense it all into one bit. And for folks that have been around for a while, we want to make sure they can get a really good refresher before elk season. So we thought it'd be really worthwhile use of time. Yeah. So we are covering, <laughs> what, what are we covering today, Baxter? Well, I figured we'd do like the first five or six um, today. And basically it's where are you going hunting? How do you pick the best units? You know, which ways should you hunt? You know, you're solo, you're guided, should you backpack? Uh, and then a lot of the logistics too, like, should you drive out there? Should you fly? You know, what time are you going to hunt elk? So it's those first five episodes of basically planning your entire hunt. So that's what right. I'd summarize today, just planning the entire hunt. And hopefully most people have already done a lot of this, but there's a ton of detail in here that should be helpful to iron out the last kinks. Um, and we'll, this is new for us. We'd appreciate your feedback, but we're going to try to just keep it high level and only hit the really important things and just point to the episodes and the articles I wrote, which are super detailed too, um, for all the little things that you can go refer to, or if you really want to dive on something, go listen to the hour long episode on it. Perfect. So all in preparation, uh, we are four months out from elk season, lots of things to figure out. I think people underestimate just how much, <laughs> how many decisions yeah. they, you need to make before you get into the, uh, into the field. Yeah. And how much, uh, you know, what's my favorite saying, right? More elk are killed in the spring than they are in September. Just right. how much this stuff affects what you're doing. Like good, you know, good, uh, choice of places you go, good scouting, good prep is going to be far more important than hiking twice as hard when you get there. Unfortunately, that's true. Yeah. So let's jump right in. What's the first big decision they have to make? It's, is it where to hunt? Yeah. I mean, that's gotta be it, right? The unit, uh, your part one we did was like a checklist of the things you need. Like we're not even going to cover that here because folks can just go look at the list, right? That's pretty mm -hmm. easy. Um, but I remember we did the first episode we did was Colorado versus Idaho, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and all the pros and cons of each, cause I've killed two elk in Idaho and two in Colorado, both DIY and, um, What's the sad news for this, Josh? <laughs> it's too late. It's too late. <laughs> it's way too late. Um, Idaho is sold out as of December 1st, basically, of last year. Uh, and so you're going to Colorado if you're listening to this now and you need a over-the-counter tag. But here's the good news, because the takeaway of that was that there's really... People, it's funny. Let me step back. There's a conspiracy theory thing going on. If you talk to all the guys or listen to the Elk podcast where they're based in Colorado, they're all talking up how good Idaho is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you listen to the ones where guys are in Idaho, they're telling you how good Colorado is. But <laughs> I honestly have hunted both, have killed elk in both. I don't, I really don't see a huge difference, right? There's different terrain, different hunting styles. Yes, more or less pressure in different areas, but that doesn't change how you hunt, right? There might be more pressure in Colorado, but there's more elk. Versus mm -hmm. there's less elk in Idaho, but there's less, uh, whatever. Um, long story short, you can kill an elk just as easily in Colorado as you can in Idaho. So. Right. And I remember you telling me, uh, even before you were recording that it's not necessarily about which state you pick, but which unit or even where in the unit you pick. Right. Yeah. That's so spot on. And that's like the number one takeaway of that episode is like the unit itself or the state or the unit isn't the thing that's going to make you successful and that's why everyone obsesses about it is everybody wants the easy way out right we all want the like instant gratification thing i picked the right place and the elk is going to come running into my lap bugling 
which is just totally false, right? It's more about, you know, 10 times out of 10, I'd pick a better area within a unit than pick a better unit, quote unquote, better unit, mm. right? So, right. But so so it kind of solves the state one. Yeah. That was quick. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's easy. Everybody who's listening who hasn't have a, doesn't have a tag, you're going to Colorado. Yep. Yeah, although Colorado, um, too, if they haven't, yeah, I think by the time we, this gets out, people aren't, can't apply to the drop. But just a note for you procrastinators in the future that if you're going to a state, you should always apply to the draw because it's pretty much free or just a few extra bucks. Because mm-hmm. so, yeah. you're already paying for the license and everything. Right? Already paying for it. So Right, right. All that good stuff. But yeah, so maybe we transition to the units because I know we did a whole article on this. And this is probably the number one thing I get all the time. People want to know what units best. Um, I built these massive spreadsheets. It's kind of a great <laughs> demand gen <laughs> thing where people look it up and they want to come talk to us because they see them. But uh, so maybe we dive into that. Hit that episode three, right? Yeah. So... Maybe to cover your first point about success rate, this one is can be misleading and also it may seem a little counter, counterintuitive for people. Yeah, I think this one's pretty contentious because if you go talk to, you got a lot of places pushing success rate, go hunts that's helping you filter, hunting fool, those sorts of guys that are using it as one of their primary success metrics. You've got tons of courses and other folks telling you that like this is how you should pick one. And I, I honestly think success rate is bogus, um, completely bogus. And here's my quick argument why. At the end of the day, all that tells you is how many people killed elk out of the people that hunted that unit. So you really don't know two things, right? Did they kill elk because it was easier for them randomly? Like, why did they kill elk? You don't know that. And two is you don't know who's hunting it. Mm-hmm. So in a really, really paradox kind of way, if you're not in a wilderness unit where Bob with an RV, who we love Bob, he's a great guy, but he hurt his knee welding 20 years ago and he's not leaving hundred yards from the road and the whole unit is crisscrossed in roads and there's a 10% success rate. You're like, okay, like, wow, the 10% of Bob's killed an elk, right? right. <laughs> you go to a wilderness unit and yeah, it's got a 15% success rate, but every dude is eating kale and bench pressing 400 pounds <laughs> and is hiking 10 miles back into it. And there's, you're like, would you rather 15% of those guys killed elk or 10% of the bobs? Right. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's totally, a, it, it's totally a, a crap show for lack of a better word in that there's not, I really don't think it's, it makes a big difference. You might find one that's 18%, one that's 10. You might be like, oh my gosh, it's huge. But Generally, trust me, I've crunched the numbers. You can look at the spreadsheets. Success rate is highly, highly correlated to the number of roads crisscrossing unit because the vast majority of the elk hunting public just drives roads and shoots things that show up next to a road. Mm. They bugle at them or whatever. Um, So success rate, in my opinion, is really not a good way to pick your unit at all. Um, And then it just leads to weird behavior like guys driving to Idaho that live in Texas or something like that. Right. 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 Um, so the, really the only way I've recommend using success rate is just use it to eliminate units. Cause there are dog units out there. I mean, there's units for three to 5% success rate. This, what the average of all elk units DIY is like nine or 10%. Mm-hmm. So if you get like a three or 5%, that's a really bad spot. Right. Okay. So you just use success rate to cut off like the bottom half or the bottom 40% or whatever of units just to get them off your list of consideration. Yeah, totally. That's, that's pretty much the only way. And, you know, I've got for folks that aren't familiar, then go sign up for the newsletter at baxterbowman.com. And I have these custom uh, spreadsheets up built to analyze units. Uh, And they go back to the episode three. There's, I added tons of things like number of public acres of land per hunter days per harvest, which is how much effort someone puts into they kill something, which is more important than success rate. I've, I've added custom metrics and ways to look at things that'll help you filter better. But even those aren't going to tell you what's you know great about a unit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want that spreadsheet and you want to help filter it down, you can do that. But uh, we were talking about before, and Josh, you had a great, you were, you were saying what we talked about last year, which is never drive by a unit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember you saying, um, 
like, sure, it'd be great to like, you know, go to a unit that maybe you get slightly better odds, but then at what cost? And so if you're driving from the East coast versus driving from the West coast, um, or South, like how much time it'll take to get to that unit. And if that cuts in your honey, it may not make it worth it. Um, I remember you, what did you say about the 10% increase? If you're like cutting a day. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were guys driving, I've hunted Idaho and Colorado, like a set of guys that drove to Western Idaho excuse me, from, uh, from like Tennessee or something. And they say like, oh yeah, it took us an extra half day to get here. I'm like, well, an extra half day it was just too straight math. Like it's not even use my subjective opinion. If you have seven days to hunt, heck, we're gonna make it even easier. If you use 10 days to hunt and you use up a day just to get somewhere, that means it should at least have a 10% better success rate in theory. Right. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about success rates kind of doesn't work anyway. So 10 times out of 10, I would say like your time in the field is the number one thing. And that's kind of a cool theme across this entire s- series. And why I think I've been successful is like you know, spending the maximum amount of time where elk are in mm-hmm. the week that you have or two weeks you have or whatever it is. And I think that's the, one of the biggest mistakes people have is they drive past units. They don't think are as good when they are as good, if not better. And they go waste a ton of time driving instead of actually hunting. So. Right. So I guess they take that huge list, you know, you go to baxterbowen.com and search mm-hmm. in um, the picking the best elk unit in Colorado, you download that spreadsheet. First step, eliminate all the ones with the terrible success rates, like the three and 5%. Next mm-hmm. step is put it on a map and then look at which ones are closest to you. Yep. Pretty much. It was like, which ones are closest to you. And then, uh, and then honestly, I think it's pick ones that fit your hunting style, right? It's look at the hunt planners in each state. Uh, people always are like, look at Onyx. And Onyx is great. It is. I'm not, not docking it. I have a full subscri- subscription. But as we talked about before, the hunt planners in the state are actually a better source of information on roads because they have up-to-date information as whether it's closed or not. Onyx just has whether the road's there, not whether it's closed in season, et cetera. Right? Right. Um, so go look at the hunt planners in each state. There's links to those in each of the articles. Uh, and then figure out, hey, is this, am I going to be hunting from the road? Am I going to be backpacking? We talked a lot on like, do you want to be in a wilderness area or a roadless area? You know, if you're backpacking or backpacking your roads, the answer is not as clear as you think. You can go listen to that episode, but spoiler alert, you probably don't want to be in a wilderness area. Um, just go find the one that fits your style, right? Mm-hmm. What you're trying to do. And so then you've got this list of a few that are closest to you for driving, they fit your hunting style. You've eliminated the bad ones and like, whoopee, <laughs> like pick one. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, or just start e-scouting, which we'll do next episode, which is the most important thing in my opinion. Because, you know, Colorado, some of them are still just totally unlimited. So you could hunt multiple units and often, you know, some of the areas I've hunted, one unit touches another. So, you know, 200 yards away, you'll be hunting one unit and then right. the other. Cool. So I think we... Yeah, I covered that. And then for really detailed stuff, yeah, we'll link it in the show notes in the description in the podcast. Um, So yeah, it would take us a full hour to cover all the detail. But yeah, you guys can just click that link and then follow their directions. Even the blog post is like step-by-step. It's very detailed, so that'll help. And it shows all the massive heat maps and the (laughs) custom spreadsheets I built and all the stats and why they matter. And if you want to nerd out and really feel like you picked a good one, that's a good way to go. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of links out to even other resources. So yeah, yeah the, the blog post is great. Yeah. And cool considerations like what other hunters, hunting seasons are going on, proximity to cities, you know, what non-hunting pressure is there, yada, yada, yada. Like there's a million little tips that are super valuable in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's picking the best unit. So we got yeah. that. Now what's the next big decision? Yeah. Like, so how you're going to hunt, right? Like it's just logistics. Like, how are you going to hunt? When are you going to go there? What time are you going to go there? You know, I think the next part, part four, which was, uh, we just really covered, you know, the, the solo versus going with people, whether you go guided or whether you backpack or base camp hunt, right? Those were mm-hmm. kind of the, the big three. Yeah. And as we were reviewing this one, I, the first point I, I wrote down, I remember because last year I was like, I don't have any friends that hunt. So that's, decisions easy i'm going solo <laughs> so some of you listening might be in that boat uh yeah no friends you're going solo. <laughs> yeah yeah that was pretty it's pretty much the uh the takeaway there but i mean there's other things to think about around like 
you know, with your mentality, is you, do you like control or are you fine with conflicts? Are you scared of being in the back country alone? Right. Like mm-hmm. you're going to be splitting the load with someone. Does that save you money and time? You know, mentally, is it difficult or not? Like there's a lot of things to think through there. That one's worth taking the time if people haven't decided, but because it is possible to go find a buddy at a, you know, R- RMEF banquet or a archery range, archery or range or something like that. So yeah, just do a test backpacking trip first. <laughs> yes. That was the biggest piece of advice there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's like, uh, I think I mentioned it originally, but it's like those college roommates, they're best friends in high school and they go live together and never talk again. So I don't know. Yeah, sometimes exactly. it happens. <laughs> Well, I think the other thing we hit on that one too, which is the most important bit in my mind is safety, right? Obviously, if you got someone else, you're better than if you're solo. But I think we made a great point, which is the most uh, helpful thing or safest thing these days is the technology that is out there with EPIRBs and personal locator beacons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the irony is a lot of times people go with someone and they think that makes me safe, but it takes a guy 20 hours to go find help and you're dead because you bled out versus you're actually safer if you have the locator beacon to pull the trigger and they could be there in two hours, right? Yeah. Um, so I think especially for guys going solo, but even guys going you know, with a friend, safety is almost the same thing. It's I think almost anyone in the backcountry that's truly unsupported and off trail these days should be carrying a locator beacon. Mm-hmm. Um, as we dove into a really big... Well, I mean, you did this the first time too, is when you say locator beacon guys go, oh, like a inReach, right? Um, and no, an inReach is actually not a PLB or a personal locator beacon. Um, and maybe do like the one, should I do the one minute thing? Probably should do the one minute yeah, thing. Yeah, right? yeah. Basically, there's a network run by NOAA, which is a government agency, the US government agency that is historically used a certain radio frequency to locate boats and send search and rescue instantly when they go under. They legalize that for land use. Um, it is fail-proof. It is incredibly helpful. You register with them every two years. You pull the trigger, they're on you. They're going to come get you, right? Um, in reaches, I'm not trying to talk them down. Josh and I both have them. It's a private network. It's a private company that you have to communicate with before they send someone. So I... This is not made up. I know a friend who is on a trip here with guys spearfishing in rivers in California. His buddy pulled the pin on an inReach because he put a knife through his leg and was about to bleed out. They had a tourniquet. And inReach told them, we can't, like, we don't know where you are. Call us on your cell phone. (laughs) They're like, no, 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 no. This is why we have an inReach. We can't call you on the cell phone. And inReach was like, "Uh, well, we don't think you're in trouble because you're near enough to civilization. That was that. That was their whole dealing. So his whole life-saving thing didn't work. Yeah. So an inReach is a satellite communicator. Basically, it's like a texting device, whereas the uh, EPIRB is a completely different thing, right? It's like a true, like, I need to get out of here. I'm going to die. Like, someone come now device. $20,000 fine if you pull it and you don't need it. So it's a big deal. Um, so that's the one that's like the minute summary. And I think you like me now have both, right? Um, yeah. I ended up buying the EPIRB first. Cause I was like, I need to be safe. And then later it was like, we figured out we were hunting the same area. And I was like, ah, you know what? It'd be nice to just like text back or maybe we can meet in town or something. So I just got that too. And then plus it makes family feel really safe. So mm-hmm. that's another one. If you're going solo, I sent an automatic message, not automatic, but I just click like the number one or something and send, and it would just send a quick text to mom dad brother just let them know hey guys you know i'm camping here tonight i'm safe and like every night i would just say hey you know i'm safe so that's another benefit i guess yeah so we dive into that in really big detail on that episode um and there's a comparison on the article so we won't beat it to death but i just just for people to be aware there is a big difference between a satellite communicator and a personal locator beacon um and if you you know even if you're hunting with a buddy it's worthwhile if you're going solo you should definitely have one yeah, um, it's a really important thing to get nailed down before you go. Um, safety yeah. first. <laughs> safety third. Um, <laughs> something like that. So, yeah, so that was that bit. Uh, what else was there, John? DIY versus uh, guided. Yeah, this is something you kind of thought through, right? You were originally like, should I do the guide? Should I do a hybrid and you know, that kind of thing? Yeah, and then it was just like expensive. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, it's we can sum this up in real quick, which is guides are really expensive, right? Like you're gonna go fully guided, you're going four to eight grand a week. And my thought process on that is if you're getting a guide, they should be getting you access to somewhere you couldn't get with a DIY thing, mm-hmm. right? Like why would you pay for a guide in a public land area? Um, so that's that. But I think the one that that people don't realize is a really great option and can be well worth the money is a drop camp, um, which is where you pay a guide or a packer to take you eight to 15 miles in, like a long way in, far enough that most backpackers are not going to want to deal with it. Uh, drop you off, set up a tent sometimes. There's different versions of this. They either like fully supported, they provide the gear or unsupported. They just like literally drop you off. Um, and then you're way back in an area where most people couldn't get to. And they come back in a week or they come pick up your elk if you shoot one. And like, that's actually a great use of money to get you into an area people don't use for like a mm-hmm. thousand or two thousand dollars a person if you go with a few folks. Yeah. So um, it sounds like the biggest benefit is like getting that access to areas like no one else is hunting. But for a brand new hunter, is there, are there other benefits from that? From it's it just sounds seems like it would be like a little more approachable not as maybe maybe their chance of success goes up with the drop camp yeah totally i mean it's you've got a, a warm place to come home to you've got safety you know you're not gonna if your tent fails your little your little tiny backpacking tent you run back to the big tent you're fine mm-hmm. um it's gonna get you like i said way back further than you'd be comfortable ever carrying an elk get away from people so i do think your success rate goes up yeah so my, in and my mind comfort, if you're I gonna guess. Yeah, and you're comfortable. I think if you're going to drop money on trying to get success for elk hunting, um, obviously there's some gear and some things you need, but like that's probably the best ROI mm. return on investment for folks that don't spend too much time. Yeah, and is it known as it's known as drop camp? Like if people Google drop camp guided elk hunt or something like that, they'll find something. Yeah, totally. And it depends on the unit. Um, I mean, you'll find stuff everywhere. But again, if you pick the unit you want or a wilderness area or somewhere you know, wilderness areas usually allow horses. And so they're going to probably be overrun with dudes backpack hunting them on the fringes. But if you get a horse that gets you in 20 miles or something, you can get away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically you, you kind of pick the area you want and find the guide and then do whatever. It's pretty late in the year to be lining those up, but uh, you know, you never know. You could find that. Uh, it is worth saying, and we talked a little bit about this then, but it's also worth lining up the packer at the same time, if, even if you're not going to mm. go. Because we had that, or I had that uh, fail last year <laughs> trying to find one last minute, and they were just like, you know, we'll come get you in three days. I was like, great, great to know you. <laughs> Have fun. Then it was a long pack out for Baxter and I. Yeah. I still <laughs> owe you for that one. That was cool. <laughs> That was awesome, though. Best uh, part of the trip. Um, so that's yeah. DIY versus, or I guess anything you want to touch on on the DIY side? I don't think so. I mean, I think we talked about this a lot in the episode and you know, if people really want the breakdown of the five or six different ways you can hunt, whether it's DIY, DIY with a packer, or drop camp, partially guided, fully guided, outfit, all this stuff. We've got that. But I think the biggest takeaway you had, when we're, if I remember, correct me if I'm wrong here, is just that the only way to learn elk hunting is to do it yourself because a ton of the tactics and the strategy and the way you hunt are dictated by like how you camp and where you set up and the way you approach and call. And so you're going to learn some of that from the guide, but I remember you were just like, Oh, like I'm basically just kind of punting those learnings down the road. Right. Right. Because a lot of those decisions you're not making for yourself and someone else is making, and you're not, you don't understand the reason why they're making them. You're just kind of Mm-hmm. following along for the ride yeah it seems where later if you go on your own you'll have to learn all those why you do this instead of that all on your own the hard way <laughs> yeah and to, to the point you made earlier which is if you know why would you buy a guide what's well, to get somewhere you couldn't go diy and if right. you do that you're having it's very different tactics than you would be using in a diy highly pressured place mm-hmm. right um, i think honestly if anyone anyone wants to listen to one of these, it'll probably be the next one, which is, you know, picking the areas within the unit. That's probably the, the number one thing I could add to the elk hunting world of like, you know, hunt where the humans aren't, not where the elk are, right? Like, mm-hmm. like that's the number one thing. And you don't learn that 
hunting with a guide because you walk out and there's elk right out the door. So, right. Yeah. So that's kind of the take on the guided thing, but most people here are probably talking DIY anyway, but it's worth thinking about. Like it's anytime something is like overhyped and really, you know, like the backpacking DIY thing is like all the rage mainly because people that sell you gear want to sell you all the gear. <laughs> like if you look at every website and magazine these days, it's just guys backpacking. But so I think it's always worthwhile when something's that homogenous one way, you should think about what the alternative is. Just to make sure it's not right for you. Right. Yeah. And then the uh, other part of that, the decisions is backpacking versus base camp. I think this, this one is a, you have your punchline, which is, yeah. You backpack in because you're lazy. Lazy. People are like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People always think that one's funny. I remember we were talking to, to Sam and uh, uh, on the Jake. last episode, right? Yeah. Jake and Sam. Yeah, they were both like, yeah, we, we trust me. We heard that loud and clear. You said you do this because you're lazy. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. But I think most people... Uh, no, man, I could go for on for 20 minutes on these. It's so hard to think of like, what's the minute long thing? But I think with these things, most people think backpacking that gets me far away from people. Right. And like spoiler alert, again, like I talked about, it's the hype. Everyone's doing it. You're going to see more people at four to five miles in than you probably would see at a standard parking lot these days. It's freaking crowded and you cannot go further than five or six miles because you're not bringing that elk out unless you've got three or four or more guys. Uh, so you can't, the number one reason people want to backpack is they want to get away from people and that, that doesn't exist anymore. Like, sorry, full stop. Um, and so for me, the, back to the thing we talked about earlier, which is spend as much time as possible where you could kill an elk. The only reason I want to do that, I want to backpack is because I want to wake up next to where I'm hunting. Uh, we talked about a ton of re you know, reasons. We talk about this later too, about, you know, it's a, you can camp 200 yards from elk. It's not a big deal. If you do it right, you can camp in areas. It's really easy to locate them. One of the all-time highest episodes for us was locating out quickly. Mm -hmm. We'll do that one later. But uh, the real benefit is just literally spending as much time with them instead of hiking an extra hour in in the morning, blowing them all out or getting to the place after the sun comes up and you miss that critical 15-minute window right, you know, right at the beginning of the morning. So Yeah, and the point about sleep is really good. You get mm. a lot more sleep if you're backpacking because you don't have to get up like super early before it gets bright or like you're get, walking all the way back way after dark and yeah, hiking, hiking all the way out again. You're you're instead of that, you're living where the elk are, getting up <laughs> maybe yeah. 30, 30 minutes before you know it starts to get bright or or in an hour, and then yep. getting to sleep when you're done, like right when it gets dark, you just go to sleep. So and you're right wow. there the next morning. That's so good. That's actually the main point. Totally whiffed on that one. <laughs> but I mean, I, I just remember there's these guys that hunted with us, and I love them. They're great guys. I'm not gonna say names, obviously, but they would, man, they'd get up at like three thirty, cook breakfast, pack their bags. They'd be hiking at five. Trust me, I knew because they'd wake us up every now and then. <laughs> they'd be hiking at five. They'd get into where they wanted to hunt at seven, probably blew out, you know, to all the elk in the valley getting there in the morning in the dark because you can't see the elk. Um, they'd hunt till like six at night. They'd come home at seven or eight, nine, whatever it was when it was dark, you know, an hour and a half of hiking later. Then they'd have to cook dinner or do their stuff. They'd go to bed at 11 and wake up four or five hours later. I'm just like, what, what are you doing? Um, anyway, and the majority of elk go through this in the article there's tons of studies the vast majority of elk live um, these are not just like hunters saying this this is biological studies biologists doing this live a, a mile to mile and a half from roads or any sort of human interaction that's just what they do and so a mile to mile and a half is going to be you know at least 45 minutes if you're off trail going through thick stuff at night mm -hmm. Anyway, rant over. I just, I, I'm always like, oh man, how do people do this? Yeah, that is, that's exhausting. Uh, yeah. I did do that for like the last few days of the season last year. And we were yeah. hiking, we were, that, I did not put like I, those three days, I put more physical work in than any other three days of, well, besides packing out the elk. But totally. uh, yeah, because to hike all the way in all that elevation and then to come out and then to do it again every single day, that's tough. Yeah. Well, I've been accused once or twice. I had one or two people reach out and say, oh, you're kind of more of a hunt smart than hunt hard kind of guy. Mm. And I'm like, no, I'm a hunt smart and hunt hard kind of guy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're yeah, going to yeah. be 10 times more successful than if you just hunt hard. Right. Um, and it's, uh, 
I just, just wasted effort. It kills me. It's just wasted effort in my mind, but everybody's got their different style. And the cool thing, you know, we also talked about some of the benefits of base camp. And I think the takeaway from that was, I I do hunt a hybrid style. Like I I do base camp and hunt from that different times because there are benefits to it. One is you can move around really easily Mm -hmm. because we talked about before, like there's no perfect spot. It's not like whitetails where there's just elk in an area. You might go into a basin. There's not a single elk in it because the wolves moved in. Right. Right. Um, so it's really easy to move fast when you've got a car or an RV or something. You just drive to the next spot that your A or your B or your C spot, which we'll talk about later. Uh, so that's a huge benefit of it. You know, you do get better sleep. You do get better nutrition. You do get um, a lot of those sorts of things. So like, like we talked about, I mean, that's kind of my style. I'll do, you know, I used to do three to four nights. Now I'm doing more like one to two nights out backpacking and then I'll come back to the, the car. I never mm-hmm. go further than like two to four miles away from the car. Right. And if there's no elk, move it. You're gone. You didn't waste a week in the back country. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's another thing that drives me nuts. Those guys go backpack for a week. I'm like, Ooh, not only are you tired as heck, but you're so far away. That if you get in there and there's no elk, you just burned a day and a half or two days mm, getting in and out. Right, right, right. Um, yada, yada, yada. So I do a hybrid and I think the hybrid's really great. And I mean, you did you did kind of all the above last year, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Uh, besides Where did you guiding, kind of people, I got yeah. all these free guides. <laughs> yeah, right. All these people all you hung guys. out with. Yeah. But um, I, did, I did, I backpacked in, I did the base camp thing, um, followed other people. Uh, I like them all. I, I like backpacking in because then you just wake up and you're like there. Yeah. And that's what got you the elk on the last day. We were already there. And then yeah. we, we heard them bugling all around us all night. night. Yeah. Well, and then the next morning we knew exactly where we were going. And lo and behold, yeah. look up the hill and there he is. And then we just kept following him. Well, I think that's the thing too. Like if you'd come, you could play this through and we can talk exact examples from last year. And we're, we're making this course, if you want to call it that, better every year because you know, Josh has got different experience. I've got different experience. We're just kind of updating it. But if you were to walk that one through, if we had stayed down at the car that night, we would have walked in early. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the the way we walked in the first night, you probably would have spooked those elk. You probably would have walked right through a bunch of them. Right? Oh, yeah. So A, you might have done that. And B, you wouldn't have known where they were because we'd heard them all night the night before. Mm-hmm. So we fell asleep knowing which direction we were really going to go. So you'd be kind of taking the time to figure out where that was. So you've already lost, you might have spoke, might have spooked them and you've already lost all that time. <laughs> right. That's a good example, right? That that tactic or strategy might have got me that elk last year. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting when you're out there uh, late at night, a lot of times like the evening hunt, it's you, you, maybe you spot them when it's getting way too dark and, and you can't get to them, but at least you have a very clear plan the next morning. Whereas yeah. like you know, if you're hiking in that you're, you're leaving all the way out and then having to go all the way back in, like you said, spooking stuff on your way in instead of just being there already. Yeah. And it's my experience, like obviously personally, but with a lot of folks that I've met day hunting, they don't, they all say the same thing, which is I stay out just as late as someone who's backpacking, mm-hmm. but I don't generally find that to be true, right? Like maybe first night or two, but you get really tired or you've had a bad week you know if you're backpacking you just go sit at your camp and cook dinner earlier and watch the same area but day hunting you hike out before it's fully dark and to your point so many nights they'll come out five to ten minutes before it's pitch dark Mm. pitch pitch dark right and so if you're backpacking you might get a play on them but at the very worst you you see exactly where they are for the next day because they generally aren't going to move too far in one night Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a it's a huge benefit Totally. Yeah. Anyway, we're kind of diving down this rabbit hole, but I, this is a <laughs> strong point of view for me is everyone backpacks for the wrong reason. <laughs> yeah. So that's the uh, key decisions episode. Um, we'll link that one in the description and the blog post as well. Yeah. Um, and then last piece is just some logistics uh, and then a pretty cool hack for vacation time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of driving versus flying and then timing, like when to hunt. Yeah. It's like, this is... I think the drive versus fly one isn't as big as the timing. People are always like, when should I go? So we'll get to that. But you're driving and flying. We go into this in big detail. So for people that have that question, maybe they should just go listen to that because there's so much there. 
I mean, driving, it's simpler. It costs less. There's room for more gear. It's easier to transport stuff. Flying, it's hell of a lot faster. It's less tiring. Um, it doesn't wreck your car. <laughs> like, <laughs> all those sorts of things. Um, this year, I feel like the pendulum has swung a little bit more for flying because a lot of the fares are refundable, although the, that's kind of ending. Uh, if you are going to fly, I would say book it now because the world is exploding and everyone's booking everything. Rental cars are impossible to find. That's my advice there. Um, yeah, I mean, that's probably, I feel like that one of all of them is something people can go look at. Yeah. But there's a ton of tips too we did for flying because we've both done that for bow hunting trips, you know, around like even your arrows and a target, how you pack, you know, how you transport meat, mm-hmm. like when to fly back or when to leave the meat or take it with you, all that stuff. So people can go get that if they're interested. Yeah. So all that's in the episode um, called logistics, driving versus flying. And uh, episode five. Yeah. Part five. Yeah. yeah part five. Um, and we'll link it too. Yep. So that's the driving versus flying. How about timing? Yeah. When during the month, like if you're archery bow hunting, let's say you have all of September, should I go early, middle, late? What, what are the pros and cons? Yeah. And I think this is another one. Like if you guys haven't figured it out from this and a lot of other sites, there's not, there's only so many topics you can talk about in elk hunting and what gets clicks and what gets people to sign up for your thing or pay you money or do X or Y is, oh, what is the best time? We'll tell you the exact week you should go. <laughs> right? Like <laughs> this is how you time it just right. So the bulls are screaming in your face and walk into your calls. Um, and again, man, I'm just being a little contrarian tonight, but that's all bogus. <laughs> it's like the success rate thing, right? Um, for three reasons we hit in the, uh, or what, four or five reasons we hit in that episode. One is that the rut timing is totally different every year. You know, the place I've been hunting for three or four years now, um, four years now, one year they were lit up opening day. One year they didn't light up till the last week of September. Two years they lit up middle September. Like it just changes, right? There's no, no way to predict it. So yeah, there's probably statistical probability around the moon phase and the moonlight entering, entering the cow's eye. And that puts her into estrus around the 15th, like the equinox. We go into all that. <laughs> if people want the crazy science, uh, they can go to that episode. Uh, but generally speaking, rut different times of year Two, I mean, you saw this the other last year, right? But like the rut is totally different, even in the micro areas. So you could be a mile away and bulls are going nuts and then over to the next valley and they're just totally silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's super like, weird. Yeah, it's crazy, Super right? Weird. Yeah. yeah. Does that just depend on the cows in the area? Totally. Is there a hot mm-hmm. cow? Right. Gotcha. Like just so even if you chose the perfect time, quote unquote, maybe the valley you were in at that time didn't have a hot cow, which is also why you should be moving a lot. But that's another episode. <laughs> uh, and then also, like the rut really isn't the easiest time to call on the bulls. Like that's something most guys don't realize the time when they bugle the most and they're the easiest to find is the hardest time to call them in because they're already with cows hmm. the later, the later or mid parts of the season. Um, so yes, you get better calling action and it's easier to find elk, but it might be harder to hunt them. So you kind of get the quid pro, you know, this for that, right? Uh, I see. So earlier in the season, you might not get as much, but it's easier to call them in, you know, who knows? Oh, uh, I think I remember your point um, from when we originally recorded. So it's not, is it that it's not necessarily about when you go? It's just that depending when you go, it changes how you hunt. Exactly. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. my biggest thing about the moon phase. Cause everyone that's listening is like, yeah, 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 man. But no, but I've read the things and everybody tells me that when the moon is full, the elk, you know, they stay out all night and then you can't hunt them during the day. And like, you're screwed. Um, and I think you, you're really interested to hear if, if you saw this last year, but over time I've learned you just hunt them differently, right? Like if they're up all night, they'll bed earlier, but they're actually much more active midday. And I like that. Like it's good to hunt them. I've killed most of my elk um, in that midday period uh, from like noon to three, which is hmm. supposedly the worst time of the, the day, but they're all up, they're bugling, they're moving. Um, and that's on moonlit nights, right? And the mm-hmm. nights where it's dark, they actually do stay active later into the morning and earlier or start earlier in the afternoon. So you're just hunting them different ways, right? Right. Um, but does that, I mean, does that line up with what you saw over that whole month you were hunting last year? Oh man, I actually didn't pay attention to the moon at all. <laughs> I <laughs> wasn't I mean, sure what was going on with the moon. Um, 
but that's probably a sign in of itself. Did you see like big differences? <laughs> Did you see big differences in elk behavior through the whole month? Uh, let me think. There, well, there was that one week where they were just bugling a lot more. So I guess it was maybe easier to locate them by hearing them. Mm-hmm. But um, besides that, I don't think I noticed anything too crazy. Maybe yeah. because it was my first year and I wasn't paying attention. But totally. Uh, but if I remember, it was kind of the week I shot mine, right? Or the week that, after. That week that you shot yours. Like yeah. the, those days, we just started hearing them Lit go up. off. Yeah. Which was actually with almost a full moon, if I remember, right? It was the best quote unquote week was the week before that. Mm. And then the moon was coming back that week. And so to your point, that just kind of randomly happened. It wasn't like the moon phase. And when they were on, they were on and they were going nuts. It didn't really matter that they'd quote unquote been up all night or whatever. Right. Yeah. I didn't really pay attention to the moon phase. Maybe I should have a little more, but do you think that's yeah. generally overrated? I guess then it's, it's not that you can't hunt them on a, it, there's no such thing as like a bad moon phase, I guess. It's just, you got to adapt. Yeah, totally. I think it's overrated. I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Like, yes, there's some truth to these things. They're more likely to rut at certain times in the month. The moon is like, it will affect them a little bit, but I think that's all bogus because Going back to one of the like central principles, this is funny. We're probably going to figure out like what the top things we say are, but one of them is you know hunting where people aren't, and hunting where elk instead of hunting where elk are, right? So avoiding the people because that's what the elk do, right? So yeah, maybe that week is quote unquote a little better, five or ten percent better. But guess what? Ninety percent of guys just scheduled that week because they all heard from this guy that that's the best <laughs> week of the season. So you're gonna go, and there's gonna be you know 400 people on your unit instead of 100, and that is gonna make it four times harder to kill an elk. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so it all yeah, it all evens out, right? Like yeah, there's yeah. yeah, I I think going counterculture is honestly a good thing these days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the thing. My thing on the moon phasing and the timing of the season is. There's not really a right or a wrong time to go. Yeah. And then um, for those, again, who want detail, like just look at that episode. We cover, I think we cover like early season, this how you hunt them, late season, this how you hunt them. Yep. All, all kinds of strategies. So yeah. that one's really, really detailed as well. Yeah. Um, we didn't tie that in with this of like, well, this is how you'd hunt here. And this is why they come into calls easier. And this is how, and like, we just can't, hopefully folks are, picking up the fact that there's a lot of good stuff here. We've put a lot of time and effort into, but we just can't cover it all. Like it's, if they want to get deep into it, they're going to have to go to those episodes. Yeah. And those will be great resources. Uh, but one last thing on the logistics, like driving, flying, when to hunt, um, your crazy hack for vacation time. This, <laughs> when I first heard this, and we've mentioned a few times sprinkled in, in different episodes, but this is ingenious. <laughs> yeah. And this is hopefully a little nugget for folks that didn't listen to that last year or planning their hunt this year. It's a little late, but basically my little clickbaity title on this is how to hunt elk for 10 days and take only five days off of vacation time. Right. Um, and this was basically the strategy is this it's uh, drive and fly and go for a weekend and then a full week. So for example, what I do is I drive out Memorial or sorry, Labor Day weekend because you're going to get Monday off anyway. Uh, you get there, you can hunt the three days of Labor Day weekend. And then you leave your car, <laughs> go to the airport, so go to the airport, leave your car, fly home for a week of work. Uh, the benefits of that is that you also get to rest up, you get to tweak your gear, you get to get ready, rescout, you know, pick new spots if yours didn't go well. Like you get to make all the course corrections that normally would ruin your week if you couldn't make them, right? Mm-hmm. Then you fly back out for the next week. You take your five days of vacation, so you get the whole week off. Now you've got seven hunting days. Voila, you got 10 hunting days for you know five days of vacation time. You added one flight and one car ride, and you're good to go. Yeah, it was so crazy. I remember you coming back to work on like that Tuesday and I was like, did you get one? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And I was also just weird to think about like, oh, your car is still there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was very weird because I think we said goodbye to you on Thursday, came back Monday. I was like, yeah, we already got one in the cooler. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then we went back for another week. Crazy. It's pretty fun. Crazy. Um, so it's a really, and it was great too because you do get an elk that first weekend. 
uh, you, you, know, you now have the butcher has time to go deal with it. You don't have to pay the crazy fee or whatever to get it done fast. Right. Yeah. So it's a good strategy. It's a great way to do it. Uh, and you don't have to back it up, you know, back to back. It doesn't have to be like one weekend. Then the next weekend you come out and you could leave your car there for two weeks, right? Like Uber and Lyft are pretty cheap. And most of these Western states, Idaho, Colorado, uh, they've got areas with really cheap parking or areas you can leave the car for free pretty much because there's plenty of space. Yeah. And sometimes airport parking's not that bad. Um, no, no. Yeah. It so, was like $6 a day for at airport parking where we were. Right. Uh, so yeah, it was, you know, grand total of like, like, 30 for like five days, 30 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so it is a little more expensive than just doing it the other way, but you basically double your hunting time for an extra $300 flight, which is well worth it. In my opinion, if you're already spending like five grand to get all the gear and the tag and all that stuff. Yeah. And that rest and recovery point you made is really good. Cause like you're getting out backpacking again and camping again, sleeping in the woods for the first weekend. Then you come back and you sleep at home for five nights. Then yeah. you go back out for a full, full seven days and maybe with a yeah. break in the middle there. But yeah, that's, well, I should probably stop talking about this now that I'm a resident, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's uh, it's a really great strategy for non-residents because you just got to acclimate. And you know, if you ruin, you can't really acclimate well during a week. Like it's just going to be miserable to some extent, but if you get yeah. that first weekend to pound yourself a little bit, right. Recover, recover a bit. Yeah. Instead of like that fourth, fifth day, just going, <laughs> just, just trying to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Well, anything, uh, I mean, I think that's it and that's a good nugget to leave it on, but I mean, hopefully that gets everyone through the entire like planning and logistics and deciding where you're going to go a bit. And we'll get more into e-scouting and the really important parts of like how you figure out exactly where you're going to go within the unit and some gear and, and then tactics later. But anything about that, Josh, that jumped out at you that you're like, wow, I wish I'd paid more attention to that or, oh, you know, I learned something in addition to what we were talking about last year. Um, I think I should pay attention to the moon phase <laughs> and just see if maybe elk are acting differently just to see it from my own eyes. And, you know, like you said, they might be bedded earlier or might be better later because they're act more active at night. I just didn't think about that at all last year. So I think that's like, I guess me taking it to the next level this year is just mm -hmm. paying attention to a little bit more like the seasonality in that local spot. Yeah. Um, let's see. Let's, yeah, it's I, a great, I mean, it's a great point you made, which is, and we talked about this the other year, which is we both at the end of the day, spend five minutes talking into the video over a phone, which seems really weird. Mm -hmm. but it's a great thing to go listen to later. That's right. Um, yeah. Cause you could go back and go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the week the moon was full. And you go listen to the six, you know, seven days that you talked and you're like, Oh, like I was saying that I saw them all at noon that day, you know? So right. we talk a lot about how to hunt them in that other episode, but so that's how I learned is um, you got to be maniacal about your note taking and the ways you approach the elk hunting. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause I've done that for four or five years now and like really clear things have popped out. Uh, which makes me think, you know, you got to hunt different ways during different phases of the moon. Right. That's a great idea. I think I forgot to do the videos. I, I just took like some bullet pointed notes, but I don't even know if they yeah, were that works. detailed. Um, but yeah, yeah, this season I'll, I'll be sure to record. But um, how about you? Anything else that you wanted to, I think we covered quite a bit. No, we covered a ton. And I mean, it, it drives me nuts because I know that we only covered like the main of the value in these. Yeah, yeah we, we tell basically, someone like yeah. this is how you should hunt that like the thing clicks on it's like i learned that lesson for five years of hunting and save you the grief yeah <laughs> it drives me nuts that like we can't go through all of those like that was what last year was for right. um, but i do think the cool part for me is it's all kind of blending together as far as the high level things one is like spend as much stinking time in the field as you can mm -hmm. whether that's picking a spot you don't drive extra um, whether that's, you know, backpacking so that you're not hiking in the morning, you know, it's, that's something I know is coming up in all the other episodes too. I harp on that all the time. Mm -hmm. so just spend as much possible time. It's a numbers game, right? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of things in life, like if you're just rolling numbers, you know, if you get 10 encounters with elk, three are shot opportunities, one, you make the shot that's how it works versus if you only get one opportunity, you're just like 10, that's why there's a 10% success rate. You're only going to get that one out of 10 times. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Yeah. That's a really good point. I think that is almost like the North star, like a lot of things, a strategy and tactics that you talk about yeah. are for the goal of optimizing for like the most amount of time near like elk near a spot where you can kill an elk. And yeah. then, in, and then uh, the second thing being like making sure that that area has more elk than any other area, which is by avoiding people. People. Yeah. That's the other thing that I'm just, it's so funny. I feel like we said that five times. It's like, all you got to do is it's really not that romantic. Everybody goes to the West to have this amazing big mountain experience and screaming elk and, you know, frosty days, but it's like, not at the end of the day, this place is overrun with humans because everyone's elk hunting now. Right. And the number one thing you can do is get where they aren't. Yeah. Uh, so and everyone goes, oh yeah, that's backpacking five miles in. I'm like, no, no, it's not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in that in-between spot, it seems. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. So I I'm guess kinda it's slowly pulling back too. I think it's another thing I'm learning. So oh. stop saying as much stuff on these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> People really want the good stuff. They can go through the effort of going and listening to some of those early episodes. Yeah. So we covered the headlines of part one through five of last year's 22 part series and tried to make it a crash course, really highlight the big stuff. Some some of the stuff you've already may have gotten figured out, but for those pieces of it that you don't, just go back to that blog post, you know, logistics or key decisions or picking the best elk unit, whichever one, and you'll get mm -hmm. the full detailed step-by-step -step how to do it. Um, and then you can go back to the last year episodes and listen to me ask Baxter a ton of newbie questions. If you were like me first time, those are great too. Yeah. Well, I think there's nothing better. We've talked about this later. It's nothing better for quote unquote more advanced hunters to hear those questions and like learn about it by teaching too. Like that's, I learned more last year than I could have ever imagined um, just because of the way you, what you thought through and asked were things I wouldn't naturally bring up. So mm. really valuable for everyone, regardless of their, their state, you know, right. hunting. Um, it's like making it all fresh and new again, seeing it with new eyes. Yeah. It's really cool. It's been a fun journey. Can't yeah, believe we're talking really about my getting me ready for my second season. Oh, yep. Gosh. Not long. Not long. <laughs> we'll, uh, yeah. So I think we're going to break this into what? Three or four more episodes. Um, what? Yeah. Gear, gear next. We did insane amounts of detail on this stuff. We could do like a high level one maybe. Mm -hmm. And then... Or no, sorry, picking the spots next, like how to scout and pick spots. I think that's Ooh, pretty your, cool. Your favorite topic. My favorite of all. Then like gear. That one I could go on for years. But <laughs> I think I think people should know that. Uh, so when Baxter has free time, he's either like e-scouting or he's reading about gear. <laughs> yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty much one of the two. We're watching elk hunting YouTube videos and putting them in my spreadsheet of why they missed. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. yeah those are the three okay. things i do with my, um yeah and then the last one is the elk, you know, elk strategy and tactics which is really cool i feel like this one you're gonna have I mean, you're gonna have you have a lot of cool points of view on all these now but i feel like of all the ones you probably have a huge amount of thought on that last bit around how you hunt and what you do right you tried it all out in there yeah, yeah yeah a lot of different styles but uh yeah stay tuned for the um elk hunting crash course we're going to condense 22 parts into three four or five parts we'll see where, how much we can squeeze in yep. um and then yeah we will catch you on the next one